This is The Coffin Affair, A Miscarriage of Justice Revisited, Episode 5, The Death Penalty. And I'm Catherine Campbell. In our last episode, we discussed Wilbert Coffin's trial. Wilbert was found guilty of the murder of one of the three hunters found dead at the hunting camp in the Gas Bay. We saw how his lawyer, Raymond Mahar's incompetence resulted in no evidence being presented in his defense, nor did Wilbur get a chance to tell his story to the jury as he didn't testify. We saw how the prosecution took many legally questionable liberties and the so-called bilingual jury followed the trial with the finding of guilt. The sentence for capital murder at that time was death by hanging. Very quickly following the sentence, Wilbert's lawyers filed an appeal. In this episode, we'll look at what happened over the several appeals that resulted, how the Supreme Court and Cabinet weighed in on Wilbert's case, and ultimately how on February 10, 1956, a man was hanged in Bordeaux jail for a crime he likely did not commit. On August 5, 1954, Wilbert Coffin was sentenced to death. He was scheduled to die three months later by hanging on November 26, 1954. Now following any conviction, there's a 30-day window for an appeal application to be submitted, and Wilbert and his family wanted desperately to appeal this conviction. Francois Gravel, who'd assisted Mahar at trial, was a lawyer in charge of Wilbert's appeals. And for the appeal, Maitre Gavel had sought the experience of Mr. Arthur E. M. Maloney, QC, a well-respected Toronto criminal attorney, as Mahar was no longer involved in the case. Now, legal representation's expensive, and the Coffin family had already depleted their immediate resources, but in a final effort to save their son's life, the family home was mortgaged to pay for the new legal team. Gravel argued before the Court of the Queen's Bench seeking a new trial for Wilbert. This is now the Quebec Court of Appeal. This is a court that hears appeals focusing on sentence or the verdict or both for criminal and other cases. An appeal is not a retrial of new evidence, but it examines errors made in lower courts. It can be one in cases where the lower courts misinterpreted or incorrectly applied precedent from a previous case where there was not enough evidence or the wrong kind of evidence was presented. This first appeal to the Court of the Queen's Bench was based on errors in the trial, the admission of hearsay evidence, and the inadmissibility of other evidence. Justice George Miller Hyde wrote the judgment issued on July 19, 1955, and although he agreed that the Crown's case was based on circumstantial evidence, the appeal was unanimously dismissed by all three judges. Because the appeal was dismissed by all three, Gravel had to seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, traditionally, seeking leave to appeal to the Supreme Court requires that the matter hold value for wider public discourse or be of national importance. And on August 23, 1955, Justice Douglas Abbott, the presiding judge who heard this leave application alone, decided not to grant leave to Wilbur Coffin to plead his case before the court. While a single judge could make that decision in 1955, today three judges must decide whether or not leave to appeal should be granted. A new death date was set for September 23, 1955. 
Now, following the Supreme Court refusal to hear his appeal on September 6, 1955, Wilbert was most likely desperate, having been in jail for several months now. He fashioned a replica of a pistol out of so a bar of soap, which he blackened and polished and used to escape the Quebec prison. Accounts of this gun were that it was highly realistic looking. And Wilbert would later say that he'd almost been joking with the guards, not expecting them to believe it was a real gun, but they took it seriously and he found himself outside of the Quebec jail. He left a letter in his cell addressed to Governor Le Ternon, whom he respected, and asked forgiveness for being forced to escape, explaining that he hoped this gesture would prove his innocence. He also thanked the guards and the governor for their kindness and attention. Outside the prison, unpursued by jail staff, Wilbert walked a block and hailed a cab. The cab was driven by Gaston Lebrec, who was unaware of Coffin's notoriety, and Wilbert knew that Gravel was not in Quebec City that evening, and so he asked the cabbie to take him to his former lawyer, Raymond Mahar, and he drove Wilbert to Mahar's address. Now, being an experienced woodsman, it wouldn't have been a big stretch for Coffin to hike to the wilderness border, given the close proximity of the Quebec Bridge to the main border, but at that point, he could have made it to a major United States city quite easily. Cynthia Patterson recounts the local folklore about the gun escape and her conversation with Wilbert's sister, Marie Coffin-Stewart, about it. Where did he go? He went straight to his lawyer's house. And he said, what am I gonna do? You gotta help me. You know, they're gonna hang me, and I didn't do it, and you gotta help me. And then he ends up turning himself in. Mm. Now, Marie said, if he'd been guilty, why, why did he go to his lawyer's house? You know, he, it's not far from where he was mm -hmm. in the jail to go to woods. He could have got to the woods very, very easily. It's not hard, even though I, he was in, I think it was after that escape that they sent him to Bordeaux. The okay. first jail he was in, turned himself in, goes to his lawyer's house, says, help. And Marie said, you know, why didn't he just keep on going? Raymond Mahar, Wilbert's former lawyer, described in an article in the Associated Press on September 6, 1955, what happened when Wilbert showed up at his door at 2 a.m. I couldn't believe it when I sleepily answered the phone shortly before 2 o'clock this morning, and a taxi company dispatcher told me Coffin was on the way over in a cab. He was supposed to be under heavy guard in the Quebec prison, waiting to be taken to Montreal to be hanged. But that man said it wasn't a joke. I hurriedly dressed and ran downstairs just as a cab pulled up. Coffin was in it. He looked overwrought. He told me he broke out of prison by threatening a sergeant and seven other guards with a mock automatic pistol he made out of soap. He said he made the sergeant tie the others up and force them all into his cell. We sat there a while talking and drove around a bit. I told him that running away right now would wreck his chance of getting a commutation or reprieve. He told me he really meant to do it, but on the way over the Quebec Bridge with cab driver Gaston Larocque, he came to his senses. We talked quietly for nearly an hour. He listened and didn't say much. When he made the break, he was all pent up, and he just lost control of himself after waiting in prison for two years as his case went through the courts. Looking back on it, I don't think I had to argue very much. I just talked him into going back right away before a hue and cry started, and he had a better chance of getting a commutation or reprieve. I told him that if he ran away, it would be the same as an admission of guilt. I explained that it would be much better for him to do it that way, 
and his break could be looked at as a result of the stress under which he has lived for these two years. Slowly, he came around to seeing this my way. Then we headed back to the prison. Mahar drove Coffin back to the prison, and he made him lay on the floor of his car as he feared the police would shoot him on sight. While it's not known what really forced Wilbert to escape prison at that time, in all likelihood he was distraught, agitated and desperate due to his treatment by the courts. Wilbert later said, If I'd been a guilty man, I would never have gone back to the Quebec jail after my escape. Shortly after this brief escape, he was moved to Bordeaux Jail in Montreal. Following Wilbert's escape and voluntary return to prison, on September 16, 1955, he was granted another stay of execution by Justice Boulanger of the Quebec Superior Court. A new date of November 21, 1955 was set for execution, which allowed Gravel some time to make another application to the Supreme Court. However, prior to the meeting with the court, some very significant evidence surfaced. In 1955, Dr. William Wilson and his wife Marion came forward. They'd been traveling across the St. Lawrence River from the North Shore by ferry on June 5, 1953, from St. Simeon to Riviere de Loup. They were absolutely certain about the date, as the next day they were involved in a serious motor vehicle accident. Recall this was four days before Wilbert entered the Gaspé Woods. The Wilsons noticed two men on the ferry due to their unusual equipment and demeanor, whom they described as being in their late 20s or early 30s. Traveling in a Jeep, they described as having a plywood covering that matched the description given by Wilbert to the police. Given Dr. Wilson's interest in military Jeeps and camping vehicles, he'd wanted to speak to the men about their Jeep. And while only one of them has stepped away from the Jeep during the two and a half hour crossing, Something in their manner discouraged him from approaching them. The two men wore U.S. Army-style field jackets, had a tent and stove in the Jeep, which had American license plates. While the Wilsons didn't see the direction the Jeep took when it left the ferry, they know it didn't follow them to the west toward Montreal. It would have either gone to the south, into New Brunswick, or east towards the Gas Bay. Lorne Patterson, a garage operator, reported seeing two Americans driving a Jeep on June 11, 1953. An affidavit given to Wilbert's lawyers said these citizens had driven a yellowish plywood-sided Jeep and the occupants had asked for the Lindsays. September 1955, the same month Wilbert was meant to be executed, an article was published in the Toronto Star describing the sightings of the Yellow Jeep and its significance to the Coffin case. This was the first time the public was made aware of Wilbert's story of their Yellow Jeep, and many people came forward with stories of their own regarding having seen a Yellow Jeep in the Gas Bay area around the time of the murders. These included Dr. Charles A. Attendu, who had seen a Jeep matching the description near Auberge Fort Provel, which is northwest of the Gaspé village, at a time pertinent to the murders. He described the vehicle as bearing U.S. plates and that the body had a yellowish color. Alwyn Tapp, a police officer from Moncton, New Brunswick, and his brother Gerald, they were former Gaspésians and were visiting the area in the early summer of 1953, and they met a man in his early 30s at a cocktail lounge in the Gas Bay just before the murders. 
The man wore army stock clothing, told them he was from Pennsylvania, and were there hunting bears. He explained that during World War II, he'd been stationed at an American battery at Sandy Point near the Gaspé village and knew the area. He was waiting for a friend to go to the bush, and he arrived in a plywood-sided jeep with U.S. license plates. John Hackett of the Gaspé also came forward that he had seen a jeep fitting the same description with two men in it at Sandy Beach going toward the mine at Murdochville near the camp where the three hunters were murdered. It turned out that both Dr. Etendu and the Tapp brothers had informed the police of the jeep sightings following the murders in 1953. In both cases, the police listened to the information, said they'd follow it up, but never contacted them again. Evidence of these jeep sightings by people other than Coffin was significant, as was Sergeant Dion's knowledge of jeep tire marks at the campsite. A final significant issue that surfaced at that time was that Wilson McGregor recanted the testimony he gave at trial. Recall that during the trial, he testified that he'd seen a rifle in the back of Wilbert's truck on June 12, 1953. He now swore an affidavit to the effect that what he saw in the back of the truck may have been an iron rod, something commonly used by prospectors. It turns out McGregor had difficulty reading and writing and could only sign his name. He also later said that he'd never told the police the date that Wilbert stopped by was June 12, 1953. He only knew it was sometime that week. All of the legal wrangling in Wilbert Coffin's case garnered much media attention. In October 1955, the Ottawa Citizen printed a story that said, Altogether, the doubts raised in the public mind by Coffin's defense can hardly be allayed unless Ottawa orders a new trial, clear of wrangling about the conduct of the first trial, and open to the introduction of any new evidence. This would seem the best way to determine Coffin's guilt or innocence. For where a man's life is at stake, the fullest resources of judicial procedure should be exhausted before inflicting the death penalty. While all the evidence appears to be significant and would have helped Wilbert at trial or even on appeal, it only came to the attention of his lawyers prior to going to the Supreme Court, at which point it was of little use. In criminal matters, the Supreme Court's limited to addressing the propriety or impropriety of a trial. It cannot hear new evidence. It can only review evidence from the original trial and hear arguments concerning admissibility and conduct of the trial. Regardless, one of Wilbert's new appeal lawyers, Arthur Maloney, presented an extraordinary application to the Supreme Court in October 1955 and effectively asked the court to set aside its earlier refusal of the appeal. Now recall, that was a decision taken by Justice Abbott sitting alone in chambers. Maloney was asking the court to reverse its own decision. Ultimately, the court refused to do so. So following this refusal as their last resort, Maloney and Gravel then filed an application to the federal cabinet for a new trial. And even in circumstances where the Supreme Court's denied leave to appeal, in rare cases, the Minister of Justice has the authority to grant a new trial, order a new appeal, or ask the court a question. New evidence was presented to the Minister of Justice of the various Jeep sightings, the Jeep track statement from Doyon, the recantation from McGregor, as well as a number of petitions from individuals and groups. 
One of these items was the tattered note found beside the hunter's truck. As discussed earlier, the note appeared to have been written by one of the hunters and clearly established that he was alive on June 13, 1953, making it impossible for Wilbert to have killed him. Given that neither the defense nor the Crown talked about this evidence at trial, it was only prior to the final appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada that Gravel publicly announced the disappearance of the note found by the police. Following this request, the federal cabinet granted a reprieve and issued an order in council directing the Supreme Court to review the case. In Coffin's case, while his leave to appeal to the Supreme Court was dismissed, the federal cabinet submitted a reference question to the court. In these instances, a reference question is where the government asks the court a question when it's seeking an opinion on a major legal matter. In this case, the question was, if the application made by Wilbert Coffin for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada had been granted on any of the grounds alleged on the said application, what disposition of the appeal would now be made by the court? The federal government's decision to take that question to the Supreme Court caused a lot of tension with the government of the province of Quebec. Apparently, Premier Duplessis was furious at the actions of the federally appointed Supreme Court as in his view, the federal government was effectively interfering with Quebec's autonomy. He stated publicly that the administration of justice was the exclusive domain of the provinces and the federal government had no right to interfere in the Coffin case. In his view, the full bench of the court had already refused to hear and permit the appeal, and the final decision on the Coffin case had been reached. Duplessis and Quebec Solicitor General Antoine Rivard also claimed that it would not be possible to have a fair trial given the lapse of time, witnesses would have disappeared or even be dead, and the media may influence the outcome. At the same time, a new trial would also likely present a real defense. It could also expose the errors that had occurred at first instance and would likely have resulted in an acquittal. No government official wants to be made to look foolish. The Duplessis government attempted to block the court from hearing arguments on the case again, but the court dismissed his arguments. When Maloney was finally able to proceed before the court on Wilbert's case and over five days of argument, he pointed out a number of errors. In particular, the trial judge failed to instruct the jury on a number of issues having to do with the weight of different types of evidence, he allowed for the admission of hearsay evidence, he failed to advise the jury on the types of verdicts they could reach, and he ignored inflammatory language on the part of the prosecution, amongst many other things. Also, the judge allowed the jury to attend a movie at a theater in Chandler in the company of two police officers who were later called as Crown Witnesses. Not surprisingly, Duplessis entrusted prosecutors Michelin and Dorian from Wilbert's original trial to defend the Attorney General's viewpoint before the court. Despite the fact that the Supreme Court accepted many of the defense's argument, it decided a five-to-two judgment that the original decision was correct. Dissenting were Mr. Justice Cartwright and Mr. Justice Locke, who ruled the conviction could be quashed and a new trial ordered, while in the past a divided vote had always resulted in commutation of a death sentence, this time, in part due to the strained relations between the provincial government and the federal government, it did not. 
Ravel received an answer on February 8, 1956. There would be no new trial. The next day, February 9, 1956, Gravel then asked for a commutation of the death sentence. He was refused. Wilbert Coffin would be hanged at the end of the day. Wilbert's case was especially complicated. He'd gone through eight appeals at the Quebec Court of the Queen's Bench, essentially the Quebec Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada, and one reference question, and the result was always the same. The higher courts upheld the lower court's decision that he was guilty of the murder of Richard Lindsay, and his punishment would be death by hanging. While all of this legal wrangling was occurring, Wilbert was attempting to marry his common-law wife, Marion Petrie. Given that they were not legally married during his trial, Marion Petrie had been forced to testify against him as a crown witness. Moreover, not only was Wilbert himself treated harshly by the police pre-trial, but Marion Petrie was detained once for 18 consecutive hours and questioned by the police. At one point, Captain Sirois read her the 23rd Psalm from the Bible and told her that it had been read to the Rosenbergs before they were electrocuted, and someone would soon be reading it to Wilbert. Her evidence regarding the stolen objects in Wilbert's possession was damning, but only provided to the police under pressure. Regardless, Miss Petrie remained committed to Wilbert and in early 1955 applied for permission to marry him at his request. The request was not granted, likely because in the event of a new trial, as a legal wife, Marion Petrie could not be made to testify against her husband. Two weeks prior to Wilbert's execution date, however, arrangements had been made for them to be married as Gravel had been given assurances that this would be permitted by the Quebec Solicitor General Antoine Rivard. Reverend Sam Pollard, a confidant of Wilbert's, and the prison chaplain was to perform the ceremony. While Petrie had been warned by Gravel to not speak to the press about it, she in fact told the Telegram of Toronto that a marriage had been requested. When the news came out in Quebec, Rivard denied having given permission and said he'd been misunderstood. When Duplessis got wind of it, he said this idea was shocking. Such a thing is unthinkable. It would be against public interest and against decent and proper administration of justice to allow the marriage. We cannot allow these two to meet. The media reaction was one of outrage, and what followed was a flood of protests to members of federal cabinet and members of the National Assembly, demanding that Coffin be allowed to marry Marion Petrie. Gravel phoned the Honorable Antoine Rivard to remind him of his promise concerning the marriage, and his response was, there's nothing I can do. You can always call the boss. That was a nickname for Duplessis by the ministers and members of his entourage. As a last-ditch effort, Gravel sent a telegram to Stuart Garson, the federal minister of justice, asking him to use his authority and influence to allow the marriage. Garson wired back, I have neither authority nor influence in that matter. Desperate, Gravel even phoned the governor general, Vincent Massey. He also had neither authority nor influence. The Canadian Legion put pressure on the federal cabinet to at least delay the execution, but they didn't have the authority as it was a provincial prison and this provincial matter. Some English people in Quebec viewed it as a persecution of English-speaking Gaspesians. Moreover, Gaspesians were appalled by what was occurring in Ottawa and large numbers of the community were in favor of clemency for Wilbert. One reason for refusing Wilbert the right to marry Marion Petrie could have been that James Coffin, Wilbert's son, was considered to be a bastard. 
that is not born of a married man and woman. And as a result, under Quebec law at that time, he had no legal rights, and in particular, no right to inherit. And given that there were also rumors that Wilbur Coffin had come across some lucrative mining claims in his prospecting, refusing permission for him to marry Marion Petrie would also affect his son's capacity to inherit any profits from those claims. Wilbur had waited 18 months from the passing of his death sentence to his hanging, the last five of which he had spent in Bordeaux jail. Between 1913 and 1956, the gallows at Bordeaux jail, not far from the heart of downtown Montreal, was where many men were hanged, and the last man to be hanged there was Wilbur Coffin. Francois Gravel and Father Pollard broke the news to Wilbur that his clemency appeal to mercy had been denied, that he would be hanged that evening. He was then informed that he'd also not be allowed to marry Marion Petrie. He was equally shocked by both of these refusals. Afterwards, when Gravel described the scene, he said that Wilbert had flinched but had shown tremendous courage. He was a man, not a brute. He maintained his innocence to the end. That was the only thing he could do because he did not commit the crime. On the day of the evening he was hanged, Wilbert prepared his will and wrote two letters with Gravel's help, one to his family and the other to his chaplain. It's said that the family's letter contained instructions to his brothers about his mining maps and ore samples in the hopes that his son James would one day profit from them. On Friday, February 10, 1956, at Montreal's Bordeaux jail, the bell tolled seven times and the black flag was raised signaling the death of Wilbert Coffin. Reverend Sam Pollard, the Bordeaux chaplain, had been with Wilbert for the past five months and was with him when he died. He claimed to have heard him say, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my soul. The hanging itself had been the work of Bordeaux's only hangman, a man who'd spoken to Wilbert many times in his role as a prison guard. The hangman had measured the trap and the rope himself and tied the noose himself placed the knot under Wilbert's right ear so that the spinal cord would be broken immediately when his body hit the end of the rope. According to Alton Price, who's written a book about Wilbert Coffin's case, the hangman had recalled his first hanging, which had been botched as the rope had been too short. Years later, a reporter would speak with the then elderly man. When asked why he took such special care to ensure Wilbert's quick demise, he said, This man, I swear he was innocent. I'm convinced of it. Wilbert Coffin's hanging almost appeared to be a personal victory for many of the officials that had been involved in the investigation and trial. The Reverend Sam Pollard told the Anglican Bishop of the Quebec Diocese of the Church, Timothy Matthew, that a banquet was held in celebration following the hanging attended by those involved in the case who were convinced of his guilt. Wilbert's death hit his family hard. They'd been fighting for three years to overturn his conviction. Their faith in a justice system that they believed would get to the truth ultimately failed them. Judy Reeder, Wilbert's niece, was a child when he was tried, convicted, and hanged, but remembers the night he died and the aftermath. Uh, everybody was very concerned and upset, but I didn't really know why. And uh, when he was hung, the night he was hung, it was on my birthday. February the 10th, and I was eight years old. And I can still remember vividly that night, uh, at least part of it. I was upstairs uh, with the rest of my siblings, and um, 
the house was full of people. Uh, I can hear them talking, very hushed, very quiet, very somber. Um, but there was a lot of people there. And then I heard people crying. Mm, that's all I remember. The execution and the whole, the whole process from the trial right through the execution and even for years, right up till today, after the fact, has been very hard, very traumatic on the whole family. Uh, none of my, my parents, my grandmother, my aunts and uncles never wanted to talk about it, never would talk about it, actually. And uh, we just stopped asking questions after a while because we saw how much it upset them, how much it hurt them. They uh, they, they just couldn't talk about it. The um, To be... To have their hopes brought up and then dashed time after time after time. Uh, this review, that review, somebody else is looking into it. Oh, there's something else has come up. There's this piece of evidence. Oh, there's, this might break the case. We might finally find out what really happened over and over and over again. It just got to the point where we, in the end, didn't really believe it anymore. And it, it was hard, very, very hard, and it still is. And uh, I know that uh, my family, whole family, has suffered because of that. And it's it's, it's kind of funny because I was thinking about this a couple of years ago, and I really think that, at least for myself, and I would imagine it's probably the same for some other members of the family, that we have this sort of a problem with the police and government and authority right now because uh, they failed us so badly that uh, it's very hard for us to have any confidence or uh, um, trust in them anymore. Wilbert Coffin's body was returned to the gas bay on a train from Montreal. His funeral was officiated by Reverend Harold Church, and he was buried in the Anglican Church Cemetery in York Centre. Wilbert's family had asked the minister at the funeral to repeat at the graveside part of the letter that he'd written on the last day. I'm not guilty, and may God have mercy on my soul. It's said that 500 mourners gathered in and around the church with an equal number across the river. His headstone now reads, In memory of Wilbert Coffin, October 1915, February 1956. Judge not that he be not judged. This comes from Matthew 7 of the Bible, at his mother's request. As many people have noted, Wilbert's execution did not signal the end of the story. Many people believed him to have been wrongly convicted and wrongly executed. The finality of the death penalty dictates that errors of justice cannot be fully rectified. But as we will see in our final episode, that didn't stop various people from trying to clear Wilbert's name. Next time, we'll look at journalistic and legal efforts to exonerate Wilbert Coffin, efforts that continue to this day more than 60 years later. A number of sources were used for this podcast and a number of people interviewed. While far too long to list here, all of that information is available on the website at www.wilbertcoffinaffair.com.